five, four, three, two, one. We are on. Welcome to the Bronze Compass Podcast. My name is Matthew. I'm here talking to you today, and what we're going to be looking at is the greatest country in the world and its beginning. Now, to say there is a greatest country in the world means that there are winners and losers. The very word greatest would mean that there's a comparison and that someone comes out on top. That is obvious. So why do I say that there's a greatest? What are we looking at? What are we measuring by? If we look at our previous podcasts, the main theme that is the red herring in between them, the thread that goes through everything, not the red herring, but the thread that goes through everything, is freedom. With feminism, we need, and culture, we need women to choose freely to be stay-at-home mothers in order to propagate the species, propagate culture, the continuation of people and place, as well as values. But they have to choose it. Without the choice, they will reject it. That rejection becomes a corruption of forced integration of a whole or of a culture that they do not want to participate in because of that force. They may well wanted to or would have wanted to be a part of that, but the force is what causes the corruption. It what causes the just good enough to get away with it attitude we see this throughout the world in all sorts of ways in all sorts of places anytime that you force or cause by force or move by force even by suggestion of force like with PC culture or um, social pressure what you see is people doing the bare minimum to get away. Not to be pushed, not to be shoved, not to be forced, but just leave me alone. I will do the bare minimum. Just leave me alone. And you don't want that. Nobody wants that. You get corruption. So what are we looking at? Who is the greatest country on the earth? One of the greatest country on the earth is the United States of America. Now the question is, why? The reason the United States of America is the greatest country on the planet and has been the greatest country on the planet ever since its inception is because it changed the rules. And not only did it change the rules, it changed them for the better. You see, the rules before the United States came along was that there was some kind of entity that was in charge. This entity, whatever you called it, it didn't matter whether it was Earl or Jarl, King or Emperor, Pharaoh or Priest. It didn't matter in all government settings. There was some kind of chief entity, like a king, that was in charge. And they, in almost all cases, had absolute power. There are a few exceptions in history, such as with Athens, with a direct democracy, but that direct, that direct democracy only lasted for approximately 200 years. Rome, with its republic, had basic familial um, 
setup where the 300 best families of Rome chose who the consul, the king, the emperor, the regent would who would be in charge. That lasted for another two, three hundred years. There have been other entities and other situations where people have tried to do a little something different. You can look at the Catholic Church with the Pope. has a college of cardinals that chooses the Pope, and the Pope is in charge. And the Church itself is the governing body of Christianity, especially during the Middle Ages. That is different. But the difference here with the Church is that that's very much like, say, a party. It's almost like communism in its setup where you must be a part of the party or the priesthood in order to be considered part of the whole or worthy for leadership. Now, how did America change the thing? How did America change the theme of the world? It changed the theme of the world by saying that every single person was created equal. They took the idea that in nature you were born as if you were in the jungle, the forest, the savanna, the plains, the desert, that you were born alone and by nature you had rights. And so they came up with a way to try to protect those rights specifically. The natural rights, whether it was by God or nature's God, or by nature, it didn't matter. What did matter is the idea that you had inalienable rights. Now, we're not going to enumerate those rights. What we're going to look at is the foundation of how they came up with this idea. How did America, how did the American culture come about to create such an idea? After all, if we look at the history of the United States in war, what we see is an attempt by America and Americans to try to make everybody like them in government or in setup or in politics, which is a natural inclination, a natural desire. You have something, it works for you, and you are happy with it, so you try to share it with others. We've done this with Japan, Germany after World War II. We tried to do it in the Middle East with Afghanistan and Iraq. And we have varying degrees of success all over the world throughout history. The question is, why does it work, say, in a place like Japan and Germany, and not work in a place like Iraq and Afghanistan? The main culprit here is culture. If we look at Japan and Germany, both were people and cultures that listened to their leaders explicitly. It did not matter what their leaders said. They did it. And they viewed their leaders in very, very high esteem. With Japan, they viewed the emperor almost as a god. With Germans, they viewed their leaders as almost infallible and the ones in charge and the ones to whom your duty must be done. And so with those two cultures, when you came along and said, okay, now 
you're going to have a different form of government, and this is how it's going to be set up. Your economy will be free market, and your government will be democratic republic. They took that and said, okay, that's doable. You're in charge. We'll make it happen. Iraq and Afghanistan were two different things. Iraq and Afghanistan both had cultures and subcultures that have been around for over 3,000 years, maybe as far back as 6,000 years. They also had cultures that, and subcultures that had to be kept under wraps or underfoot by a man of steel. If you look at Saddam Hussein, as bad as Saddam Hussein was and his sons were horrible, he kept the country together and he made it possible for Christians, Muslims, Kurds, Sunnis, Shi'i, uh, Muslims, etc. to coexist together. There was not internal strife that we have today or have had the last 15 years. He, with his iron boot kept it together. Afghanistan is very much the same way. Although in Afghanistan, they did go a different way with their Islamic tint to the iron boot. Whereas Saddam Hussein was a dictator and was very atheist in his um, execution of government and policies and procedures. The Afghani government under the Taliban is purely religious and is therefore dogmatic. And this dogma does not allow others to exist in it. But this dogma, this dogma did keep certain things out, but for the most part, there's nothing doing. When you have a bunch of warlords that are used to having a supreme warlord over them, and then now are told that they are going to be voted on or against, no, they're not going to take that. But that's not what's important here today. What's important here today is how America came about. You see, when we created the country in 1776 and declared ourselves as such, what most of us in America today forget to realize is that America had been a version of itself since its inception. The American continent, the continent itself, i.e. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, etc., was discovered by Amerigo Vespucci that it was an actual continent and supposedly we name America after his name. I don't know how accurate that is in its truth as I have seen and have found many different versions of the name America stated throughout several sections of the world um, sometimes leaving off the first A so it just looks like America and sometimes uh, taking out an A or an I, so it looks like Merca or Mercia or something of that nature. And so it could be that America itself, the word, has an ancient origin that we do not know that then was brought about with Amerigo Vespucci. Usually you don't name something after the first name of somebody. That's an oddity in naming. Christopher Columbus, Columbus, when we talk about Columbus, you have the District of Columbia and not the District of Christopher or Christophria or whatever. 
So it does not make sense that his first name being Amerigo was the name that we chose for it. I personally think that there's something deeper there, but I can't find anything deeper, so I do accept it's named after him. Now, that's a little rant on the side for you about the way my mind works, but that's what we do when I look for information on what I'm talking about. So, when America started, the New World had been known for almost 120 years. In 1492, Columbus discovers the Caribbean islands and later on discovers Central America and many others discovered Central America with uh, the Aztecs, Maya already having fallen in the Aztecs, and the Inca having fallen to the Spanish way before the uh, first pilgrims land in Plymouth Rock in 1620 or the Virginians land in 1607 in Virginia. Now, they weren't Virginians, of course, but what they were were gold prospectors and silver prospectors and thinking that there was gold there. Well, anybody who had been up and down the coast, and you could read it, they knew there was nothing there. The people that met them were not as elaborately decked out as you see in Mexico and South America. They were hostile for the most part, and they were also impressive individuals being taller than the average European at the time and much better looking according to the uh, journals of the sailors and the captains that uh, saw these people and discovered them. The point here is that what the Europeans knew about North America is that there was not gold in the sense that the Aztec or the Inca had gold. The Aztecs brought in Cortez and showed him rooms of gold where you walked in and it was like a vault in a bank filled from bottom to top, wall to wall, gold. And because the Spanish were white and had beards, the Aztecs thought that it was Quetzalcoatl, the god of wisdom for them and thought that he had returned to give them more wisdom and knowledge, and they were proud of their achievements, of their buildings, of their sacrifices, and of their gold. They were showing it off. At one point, as uh, Cortez, upon visiting the Aztecs, were witnessed a 20,000-person sacrifice. He knew that he couldn't change these people from sacrificing people on an altar before everybody, so... In order to get the gold, in order to get the glory, and in order to spread God, he made alliances with the tribes that were not friends with the Aztecs and slaughtered the Aztecs as fast as possible. Now, he did have an ally on his side that had not been an ally before, and that was disease. With the spreading of smallpox, measles, typhoid, etc., mumps, most of the Aztecs couldn't put up a fight, and so Cortez and his men won the day and won the continent. Now the English and everybody else, they knew that North America didn't have anything even close to the Aztecs. They didn't have anything close to the architecture, the culture, the, the riches. And so there was no fight, flight, or hurry to get to North America 
to be your own. It was more important that if you were going to establish something, you would establish a plantation in the Caribbean Isles so that you could have a sugar plantation um, to ship back and make loads of money in Europe. This is what the Dutch did. This is what the English did. This is what the French did. And the Spanish had been there for a while. At the same time, the English hoped. There were several companies that did it. The Virginia Company started in Virginia, of course, and looked for the gold in the ground and said maybe the North Americans were just too ignorant of how to find gold, and so they went and looked. Upon going and looking, they discovered nothing. And it was John Rolfe, three years later, after the discovery of nothing, showing up with seed of tobacco to start a farm or a plantation of tobacco. Now, at the time, tobacco was only found in the Spanish colonies. The Spanish had the hold on tobacco leaf and the tobacco products in Europe and the world, tobacco being a, an American product, an American plant. Somehow he gets a seed and he plants it in Jamestown, Virginia. Now, Jamestown, for the three years previous to John Rolfe showing up, had been starving, had been dying. Of the 500 people that originally showed up, there were only 50 left. And three months previous to him showing up, a man was put to the stake and burned for killing his wife that was pregnant and planning to eat her. The people had already eaten everything else in the, in the colony, they didn't hunt. They couldn't. They didn't have the tools for farming. They couldn't do that. They were all gold prospectors, thinking that what they were going to do was show up, start prospecting, and make it rich and go home. That was a failure. And the Virginia Company tried a different tact with John Rolfe. John Rolfe coming in, planting seeds for tobacco, and starting the first plantation. Now, this is where things in America changed economically, all of a sudden there's a boom in America where everybody was growing tobacco in their field or in their property. People went from starving to death, wanting to eat their loved ones and eating their boots for the, with the leather on it and their clothes to becoming almost millionaires in a season because of the tobacco going to Europe. And so when the first possibility of slaves showed up in 1619, they took it and they used the slaves as what you use slaves for, free labor. But this is where it changed. Not changed. This is where it's different from the Spanish colonies. The Spanish and the Portuguese, they had had a history of slavery. The English did not. They had a history of indentured servitude. Now, indentured servitude was worse than slavery, and it was worse than slavery because it was not a true investment. And talking about slavery like this is very uncouth. But when you buy a person, they are an investment. They are going to be with you forever or until you sell them. So... 
you know, you buy a slave, you think they're going to be with you for the, however long they have to live. If they're 20 years old, you know, they have 10, 20, 30, 40 years left of labor with you. You usually take care of that investment. Indentured servants did not have that. Indentured servants, by law, would be let go and free after the five to seven years that the law demanded that either they fulfill or be let go by. And, and upon being let go, were usually given something like, you know, 50 acres and a mule type thing. So the Virginia Company would actually bring indentured servants from England, have them work on the plantations, and then if they survived that indentured servitude, they would be given... 50 acres and a mule and a lot of times that was a price what would happen is is that you would get a man who had a family that man would then jump on ship and pay with his life the virginia company to land in america and then with his labor for the next five to seven years or however many children and wives he had well he only had one wife but however many children or dependents he had um he worked that long to get them to America. And so for the next three to seven years, mostly five to seven, um, they stayed home in England waiting to be brought to America. And they would be brought to America once he paid his time. Well, financially speaking, if you're a plantation owner, you pay for somebody to show up and work your field for five to seven years. That's good for you. Well, plantation owners did anything and everything under the book and outside of the book, under the sun and into the book and outside of the book or the law to keep their indentured servants. They would find ways to blackmail or um, set up their indentured servants so that the servants would have to be there for the next one to two more years. There's records of some indentured servants uh, tenure being extended out as far as 10 years in one and two year increments because something bad or whatever showed up on their record like they stole from their master or they went off plantation or something of that nature and the punishment was you had to stay an indentured servant some men even brought their wives and children over to be indentured servants for people and there are many cases where the indentured servants would be killed by the whippings and the lashings of their masters. Some have been asked, or some have looked into, you know, why would that happen? And a question was even posited to a owner, and the owner said, you know, why he doesn't whip his slaves as hard as he whips his indentured servants is that he's going to have his slaves forever, whereas his indentured servants he's only going to have for the next five years. And so, the beginning of America, even though it did have indentured servitude and it did have slavery, the beginning of America as part of culture with the slavery, it's important to realize that the law was not about slavery. The first slaves that showed up in 1619 that were actual slaves. They were uh, taken from Portuguese. The Portuguese were sending them to the Caribbean or to Brazil, and they were captured by uh, British merchants, sold to the uh, 
Jamestown colony for food. Well, Jamestown didn't have slave law. England didn't have slave law. So they gave them indentured servitude, and they worked their indentured servitude off, and after they did that, they were given land and were free people. They had their own plantations, they had their own farms, and they married. Well, it was more profitable for those that were there to have slaves, and so little by little, the law, especially in the South for the colonies and for England changed and they changed to the betterment of the plantation owners and not to those who are being brought here but to work out and look at what this issue of slavery was and how it affected the country we have to realize that almost every people that were brought here or that came here in the beginning especially with one of the main companies was an indentured servant there were records where people were kidnapping people on the streets in England and then marking them as indentured servants and sending them to America to work on plantations where they were taking the Irish, Irish kids, Welsh kids, Scottish kids, orphans, um, uh, prisoners, criminals, etc., putting them on a ship, marking them as indentured servants, and sent, shipping them to America. One shipper, one man, whose name I forget off the top of my head, he had anywhere between 800 and 1,000 people that were kids that he grabbed off the street and he sent to America as indentured servants. That's just from England. And then, of course, we all know about the slave trade of 400,000 over 200 years showing up in America. Now, why is this important to look at? Well, because America, being the greatest country in the world, has acknowledged that the important thing is freedom. If we loop back around, they changed everything politically that it was to be the land of the free home of the brave why are they brave because they do everything on their own they don't wait for a king or a queen to give them their meal to give them their castle to give them their clothes to give them their permission they do it themselves and that is brave it's not that we have the bravest soldiers everybody has brave soldiers it's that we have the bravest people who go out and live on their own and those people whether they were slave who had to deal with the shipping and handling and living on plantations and dealing with the toil and strife and the bravery of staying alive and the hope that it someday would get better or of being people that were taken and beaten and persecuted just for being poor and sent to ships. The bravery of going through that and leaving your wife at home in another place on another continent to make a better place for yourself. The bravery of that. The beginning of America, the American colonies, was one of turmoil and strife. It was one of pain and anguish. Not only for the free, but for the indentured and for the slave. It is through this pain, this toil, this strife, that America's character comes into play we become hard hard workers it's only by the sweat of our brow 
that we gain a living. You see, the European system at that time, and mostly the world system at that time, was very feudal. The feudal economic system and the feudal political system was set up for protection. It was basically one giant racket. The king would provide protection in the form of armies of dukes and barons who would then provide land for knights who would then provide protection for the peasants. The peasants would then pay taxes to the knights who would then give their service to the dukes who then would give their army to the king. And in this eternal round of a protection racket, feudalism and Europe had thrived. Now the outliers of that were bankers and merchants, and most, most of them were looked down upon. Bankers, because Christianity had a law, the Catholic Church had a law, that you could not have what was called usury. Now usury is you could not take money, or excuse me, you could not lend money to somebody and then take a compound interest reward for giving that money away. So, kings and queens and princes and barons, etc., they found a way around that. The way around that was to use Jews. Jews were the bankers. And so Jews were looked down upon. It's one of the reasons why, during World War II, Hitler was so successful in convincing all of Europe, most of America, or a good portion of America that Jews were bad. It's why the Bolsheviks in Russia were able to convince that the Jews were bad, that they were bankers, and that the international banking conspiracy was by the Jews. It's all because of that history that the Catholic Church says you couldn't have a bank that lended money with compound interest. They could lend money, but they couldn't have the compound interest, and it's the compound interest that makes the money for the bank. And makes a bank viable and strong. At the same time, merchants, because they're close to money and close to providing things that make a lot of money, they were looked down upon. The cult of poorness, unless you were in the class that was supposed to be rich, was large and in charge. It was PC. It was not PC at the time to be a merchant and to be rich from giving people things that they want and making money off of it. It's only in America when they realized that if you worked hard, you could provide things for people, and providing those things for people meant that you made money. And if you did it well and you did it a lot, like they noticed with plantations, you could make a load of money. So... America learned the value of the individual and hard work. The individual being they themselves providing for themselves and not at the liege of some knight or duke or baron, but they themselves could make their own choices in how to do things. Now, why did this happen in America? Why didn't America become like another dukedom or fiefdom of England? England had decided that it was too expensive, and because there was no profit in it in any kind of sense, there was no reason to not 
just let colonists go. Another thing is, is that England during the 1600s was in the middle of huge turmoil and strife. We have to remember that during the 1600s, this is when the Civil War and the internal strife of England was happening. A strife that most historians date from 1640, 1645, 1648, all the way until around 1684, 1690, where you had the Civil War, the Revolution, um, and the strifes that, that happened. They weren't in a position to quote-unquote colonize, but they were willing to let people that weren't wanted to go. And this is where the pilgrims come in of Plymouth Rock. The pilgrims were Puritans, people who thought that the Church of England was being too Catholic. And in being too Catholic, they wanted to purify, hence Puritan, they wanted to purify the Anglican Church. Well, they were basically kicked out, run out, or... Uh, oppressed out of England. They went to Holland. It didn't work out there for the next five to ten years, and they came back. The Plymouth Company, that was in Plymouth, England, they promised, hey, go to America, you'll find a place where you'll be able to live your religion and um, pay us at the same time. Well, they didn't want to be persecuted anymore and run out of town, so they decided to run themselves out of town. They all got on a Mayflower, went towards Virginia, and got blown off course and ran into Massachusetts. In running into Massachusetts, they created a society based on the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact was, this is how society here in Plymouth, Massachusetts was going to run. Because they did not have a charter from the king where the king was going to choose the governor or the mayor or the knight or the sheriff that was going to be over them they were going to live by their own rules and because nobody was a noble and nobody was in charge they lived by a form of democracy a representative government for jamestown did basically the same thing where they created a charter for themselves that made it so that everybody was equal and they had representative government. And they called that the House of Burgesses. This starting out in a new land alone without interference from classist individuals and power enabled America to step back from the rat race that was the world and realize that there could be a different way and a better way for everything to run, whether it was the economy with a free market system or whether it was government with representative government or representation, representative government, yes. This stepping back and realizing that there is a better way allowed them to continue. Now, England, because of its turmoil and strife and the problems that it was having, they created a policy towards the American colonies called salutary neglect. Salutary neglect was a policy of England towards the American colonies, and they had a hands-off 
attitude towards America. They said, hey, we're not going to tax them. We're not going to tell them what to do. For the most part, we will cause laws and promotions so that we get the most bang out of our buck. But if we leave them alone, they will do their thing and gain money. And that is what solitary neglect was. It was a way and a possibility. It was the way that made it possible for America to realize its potential in the individual because it did not rely upon the whims and worries of a monarch or a duke or an overlord of some kind. So America has solitary neglect and representative government with all of its colonies from the initial founding of the colonies all the way up until the American Revolution. And in the case of somebody like Virginia or Massachusetts, that's almost 150, 175 years in the like with Georgia or or New Hampshire, that's you know a hundred years, sixty years, eighty years. But still, what you have is a generation upon generation upon generation, where the modus operandi of the colony was to vote for your own representative that was going to go to your state or the colony house vote on bills, laws, etc. on your behalf, and you had direct representation for that. That was unheard of the entire world around. If it was not for that policy, America couldn't pull it off. Did we have the intellectual capital for that? Yes, we did. We had the greatest minds of the 18th century, working on not only the American Constitution, but also the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, etc., etc., etc. But we had the culture that backed it up. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that this is why it happened? That salutary neglect, the time, turmoil, strife, and tears of indentured servitude, slavery, and rugged individualism. The representative government. Why are these things the foundation of America in its culture? Why did that create America and not intellectuals? Rich people that had a massive stake in the game trying to force a country to perpetuate their little plantations, their personal empires. Because we have to look across the ocean now and compare it to France. France did not have a time of salutary neglect. France, from before Charlemagne in 800 AD, had been under a king their entire existence, whether it was the king of England, the king of France, the king of Burgundy, 
there was some royal monarch of some kind in charge of them the entire time. Now, this is true of almost every single country, especially in Europe and Asia. But in the case of France, they enjoyed absolute monarchism from almost the beginning, even though they did have a representative house that mostly was in name only. But without a tradition of having local leaders chosen by themselves, of having their own say, of less taxation or no taxation of all, of being personally responsible for themselves and not responsible to a duke, a baron, a marquis. Without that American experience, when France had their revolution and their intellectuals got together and put their country together and rebelled against their king, what did you have? Well, you had a very, very bloody revolution where anybody and everybody that went against the intellectual uh, government, the Republican government, was put to death. This is where Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI are beheaded. This is where all of the guillotine fun went on. Now, I'm facetious on the fun, but you know what I'm talking about. This is where if you did not declare your personal loyalty to the Republic, that everything that you owned, whether you were a merchant or, or monarch or nobility, it would all be taken away, given to the assembly, and then you'd be beheaded. Marquis de Lafayette only escaped because he had served on the in the American Revolution with and on the George Washington general staff. If it wasn't for that, he, as Marquis, which is a rank right around Duke, um, would have had his estates taken away, his rank taken away, and would have been beheaded. And the problem with this was and became is that it became tyrannical where anybody and everybody was a boogeyman that the assembly had to uh, stamp out, push out, stomp out. Robespierre, one of the main proponents and leaders of the assembly during the French Revolution, he himself was put to death with the guillotine as not being Republican enough. It was in this revenge. It was in this swinging of the pendulum this overcorrection of life that caused the terror that was the French Revolution it also caused the failure of the French Revolution as there is no other revolution that has happened like the French Revolution and actually worked and the French Revolution did not work what you have was several people the main one being Napoleon Bonaparte, who realized that what the country needed was a strong leader. And he being a colonel and a general, having gone up in the war that was happening at the time, because France was weak and her enemies were against her, he took charge. 
and became emperor of France. Now, say what you will about George Washington. He did not become king or emperor of America. He did exactly what he was supposed to do and exactly what he said he was going to do. He put the sword down, he gave his power back, and he went back to his farm. He was one of the richest men in all of North America when it came to land, property, slaves, etc. And instead of ensuring he would continue on forever in legacy, in name, in power, he gave it back. I don't know of one other time in the history of the world where the person that had the entire nation at their fingertips that was offered the kingdom of the United States of America by Congress, the governing body of America, the kingship to be King George I of the United States of America, he turned it down and walked away. That's because of the American tradition. That's because he grew up in representative government. That's because that government listened to the voice of the people. And this is why America is the greatest country on the planet. Our revolution worked. Our revolution had years and generations of tradition that supported it. Years and generations of hopes, dreams, thoughts, feelings of individualism making it happen for themselves that made it so that a man like George Washington could, who having made it for himself, made it possible for everybody else to make it for themselves. We'll talk about this more in the next podcast. My name is Matthew. Thank you for joining me on the Bronze Compass Podcast. We're out in one, two, three, four, five.